Welcome to Open for Business here on NLive Radio 106.9 FM, also available live digitally at nliveradio.com. That's www.nliveradio.com. But I don't suppose that matters really because you're here listening, hopefully. Um, We've just been listening, of course, to Queen with Don't Stop Me Now. I'm having such a good time. Well, I hope you have such a good time throughout the show as well with some interesting guests and some great music, as always. Interesting guests include somebody that lives part of the time in the US and part of the, part of the time over here in Northamptonshire. That's Paul McKellen. Um, we've got a very ambitious young lady who's paving a way for herself in motorsport, uh, Eliza Seville. And we've got 
um, a, a lovely interview with the High Sheriff of North, Northamptonshire, Millen Shah, who will be telling us about the role and what he's been up to in the past 12 months as he comes towards the end of his year as the High Sheriff. We have great music, of course, and I think the next one sets the scene for the interview with Paul, Paul McKellen, who is a businessman um, and travels a lot, but certainly lives part of the time in the US, part of the time in the UK. And I thought you and he might appreciate ELO with all over the world.
Well, every so often you're out and about and you meet some interesting people you didn't expect to. And uh, this happened to me a few days ago when I was at the AGM for the Northampton and County Club, which is in George's Row. And I came across a gentleman who um, has very strong connections with Northampton, uh, but also spends half the year or more living and working in the U.S. So it's a big warm welcome to Paul McEllen, who is the Director of Business Development for FlexLink Systems. And yes, before you ask, well, let's ask him. He'll tell us. But anyway, Paul, welcome to the show. You've just got back to the States. Is that right? Yes, arrived uh, just last night. So I'm, I'm actually based in Boston for the time being. Boston, what a lovely city, no? Yeah, it's a nice city. And uh, I've been here. I've been in Boston now for two years. And I spent uh, seven years in Silicon Valley before that. Uh, we were based right in Cupertino, uh, right next door to the Apple headquarters, and before that, five years in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> wow. Uh, family with you? They're here? They're there? Where, where's the sort of base? Oh, my wife is with me. She gave up a career in uh, when I decided uh, I wanted to try to uh, try out life in, in Texas. Um, she gave up a career in the property industry in Northampton and joined me on the venture. So uh, she's still here with me now. I don't know how, but she is. <laughs> Um, well, it's, it sounds, you know, for a very glamorous life. Uh, it, would you would you say that, or it kind of be tiring crossing the Atlantic so many times? Yeah, it, I mean, let, let's face it. Um, I think uh, it's hard work working in in you know in in the global organization. But uh, I've been working globally now for you know uh, thirty forty years, so uh, I'm used to this sort of lifestyle where you are traveling around the world. I was based uh, before this. I was based in. Um, in Sweden for a couple of years, uh, and I had an apartment in Gothenburg, uh, and uh, and before that I was running the European operations, um, I had sixteen companies I think in Europe uh, to look after. So that was uh, yeah a really big role also. Um, but now I took this this challenge because we had some issues in in the US, and I went came across to sort out the initially the problems we had in. Um, uh, in Texas and grow the business over here. So I've always been working in uh, business startups, business development, growing new businesses, um, getting things going basically uh, from a, from a scratch. And the the, the history of uh, this business that I joined actually, I was I was actually based in Milton Keynes, um, uh, working with a company that was moving into uh, higher end automation with guided vehicles. Um, and I joined them in 1983, I think, to to get them into the flexible manufacturing systems and and uh, an AGV business. And I was looking after the UK and the and the US market at the time, working with the automotive companies in the US. Um, and I was approached initially to do a startup company for for SKF, the big largest bearing company in the world, um, and initially turned it down. But then things changed um, a year later and. Um, I was approached again to uh, would I still be interested in doing a startup? So uh, that's what exactly exactly what happened. I did a startup of a business, which um, we started in in the UK. We started it down at Luton and then moved it up to Milton Keynes, um, and that was in nineteen January nineteen eighty six. And I think globally, I think there was maybe twelve or less than twenty people globally working with this idea and now we are you know best part of 1500 people and we turn over 300 million uh around about that in fact more than that now a little bit 320 million 
Uh, so we've grown the business from scratch, really, and built built up the operation uh, over the last uh, 20, 30 years. Wow, that's impressive. So let's um, sort of decompose this a little bit. The, when did your connection with Northampton start then? Was it at that time when you were based in Milton Keynes? Yes, it was. It was basically, um, you know, when you come down from the northwest of England, which, which is, you may lean for my accent, I was from the northwest, um, what has what actually happens is that you're moving with a young family, you had a young baby, etc., and you're moving down to a, a different area of the country, but you still need to have access to your roots. So we decided to pick a market town north of Milton Keynes, and which is where I was working, and uh, uh, and then it has its good areas, bad areas. You've got to find somewhere to live. So that's what we did. We just got a bridgehead, and Northampton was that, actually that bridgehead. We just um, we picked, we just picked a town, and then uh, and had to to get a buy a house here rather quickly, and and get set up and start working. So that's what we did. That's that's a reason. Very similar to me because I was living in Spain with a Spanish wife, and they took a job here in Kettering, and. Um, you know, had no idea coming from North Wales, no idea where to live. You know, Stanford was nice, etc. And I was told, no, your group business development for RCI, Europe, Middle East, Africa and India, you're going to be on a plane a lot, Adrian. So we suggest that you live between Kettering and Heathrow um, and therefore Northampton sort of entered into my life. So not too uh, dissimilar. Um, your yeah. career then, the training to be doing this stuff. I mean, it obviously sounds very, it's technological, right? You, you know, Silicon Valley. What was your sort of um, career education steps that got you to where you are, Paul? Not traditional, I suppose. Um, I think what, what happened, um, uh, I actually, I left school at 15 and became an, uh, an apprentice. And so uh, after a short uh, period of time, um, I did, uh, I just loved it, the, the, the whole engineering side Um so I was sort of apprentice of the year, et cetera, moved into the design office, was picked up. And uh, I guess by early 20s, I was running sections, design office uh, uh, sections. So I had people working for me and contractors working for me in my early 20s. So um, I moved very quickly, I think, through the ranks in engineering. Um, and I, I was studying part-time, so I, I qualified all the way through, but I did it all in my, my own time and and then worked um, my way up. And I, I worked, I left those pack companies and I worked for, a, uh, I was working in, initially in the bottling industry and then I worked for another company that actually was in a, um, a basic manufacturing uh, build a business that actually made things like builders hardware, door hinges, locks and all that type of thing. Um, and they needed to a lot of equipment to automate uh, production, but they couldn't really afford it. So uh, I used to design that equipment and manufacture it and make it and build the whole uh, operation. Um, so that's what I was doing for, for quite a while. And then I was working with them. I, uh, the equipment was successful. So we started exporting it, and particularly to one of the most interesting jobs I ever had was actually working in Africa uh, with this equipment, because what we were doing was working for the Centre for Industrial Development in Brussels, and then making taking automation equipment and then making it, simplifying it so it would work in developing countries. So uh, things that were electric or pneumatic, you had to make mecha mechanical. So you had to reverse think everything. 
and make everything really durable so it could stand up in in very difficult market conditions. Um, so we built, and then we were building uh, these uh, production facilities in, in Soweto and Kenya and different places uh, to help the local economies. So uh, we did that for a while. And then I was building, uh, project managing the uh, the flow glass plant for Pilkington Brothers. Uh, so they built the biggest flow glass plant in the UK uh, at St. Helens. Uh, so I was working with um, with that for four years, actually designing and building the, the flow glass plant for that. Before I moved south to to join FATA, which is um, uh, it's an American. Uh, I'm sorry, it's an Italian high end automation company. Uh, they'll build total body and white lines uh, for Fiat and etc. This type of thing, uh, high bay warehousing. Uh, and so I was working for those guys um, and developing the AGV business when I was approached by. Um, uh, approached by SKF to, to to start up this company, so uh, my background basically has been one of in in depth immersion in all types of engineering, um, and uh, both in design, project management, installation management, um, you know, with uh, spending lots of time on site and with customers, uh, and then laterally, of course, uh, I moved very much into uh, into business development. Um, and creating companies, and then eventually, of course, selling it. So we 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 were uh, we developed this business to around about 100 million turnover, and then SKF decided to sell us. So I worked for a year selling the company for for SKF, and then then went with it. Took some shareholdings in the company, went with it. Amazing, indeed. So engineering um, captured you. You design. Now you're on the sort of um, Promotion because you understand how, you know, all the nuts and bolts and how the widgets all fit together type of thing. What though, if we got students listening, what would you say? A is your biggest tip or advice to them, and B, what's your, you know, USP? Do you think where's your most important value added now, given this extensive career with different facets? Yeah, I think advice. Um, I think one of the most important thing is. Uh, I mean, uh, as a, I, I do this now, even though I, I'm working with some of the uh, brightest brains, you know, in Silicon Valley around the world, um, and and you have to be able to compete in that market, right? Um, uh, and I've been doing that now for the last number of years. You have to be able to fight and compete with the, some of the the best brains. But I, I've always found that if you get the grounding right, like being an apprentice, I've never been ashamed to say I've been an apprentice. It's fabulous yeah. uh, to have that uh, intrinsic knowledge of of how things work, you know. Um, uh, and I've never been scared to have a go, right? And and that's, <laughs> I think it's probably some of, some of the, the the best advice is don't think too much about it. Have a go, mm-hmm. try it, and. There's nothing. There's nothing you can't uh, really address if you really put some uh, some focus on it yourself and stretch yourself. And <clears throat> what I have always done with our organisations now, and with all the engineers I've trained over the years, is is to stretch them. Always put them in um, uh, a slightly uncomfortable position. 
if you don't do that, you don't learn anything. <laughs> right? Good. Yeah. <clears throat> Very good. If you do the same thing all the time and you do what you know, you don't learn anything. So the, uh, the best thing is put yourself uh, put yourself out there. Make it uncomfortable and put yourself in a learning position and never stop learning. Yeah. Well, that's very good advice, isn't it? Because you're staying in your comfort zone and people, even public speaking, you know, some of my students, oh, I, I get afraid of public speaking. Well, yeah, the first time I did it was afraid, you know, but you've got to get through some of these hurdles and barriers. So I think that's tremendous advice. So now then with all the different elements to your career, you know, I mean, you're in business development, you you know the back office, the front office, the manufacturing, the ins and outs. But what have you learned about yourself and your, say, management style or your, you know, corporate executive and value-added sort of element? Ah. <clears throat> I think one of the uh, one of the things I've learned about myself is that actually, what I really like is to have decentralized organizations. I actually really believe in uh, empowering the the people themselves to uh, to build the businesses i think um you, you know we've made the transition from being uh, part of a huge organization when we started which gave us a lot of freedom uh, to develop a, a, a business but then once we did, we were moving so fast they realized they couldn't keep us so they had to to release us <clears throat> and then we grew, grew again grew the business very fast but um what happens is now we, we you finish up in back into a corporate Eventually, you're acquired by a, a much larger corporation, um, which is again comes back to far more structured uh, and centralized um, structures. And uh, my my honest feeling is that if you want to grow a business quickly, if you want to um, develop something into something which is significant, you have to let it go. Right? You have to. You need to trust the people that you have. <clears throat> you need to give them freedom. You need to give them responsibility. Uh, uh, but with that goes accountability, right? So they have to be accountable for the rentals. <clears throat> but if that's the sort of uh, environment from my own perspective, I like to work within. Mm. Um, I don't like control cultures. Um uh, it's what happens with mature businesses um, when the focus comes more on cost cutting, cost reduction, etc., and you forget how to develop a, a company. You know, uh, I often reflect: why do some companies grow and others don't? You know, if you look at a lot of private companies, there's so many private companies. At that point, they they forget what marketing is because when you start a company, you don't have anything. You don't have you don't have your products, your customers, who you're going to sell to, uh, how you're going to communicate with them. You don't have anything, right? So, what you do at that point, you're doing real marketing. You're finding out your customers, you're segmenting your market, you're finding out what to sell to them, the structure it, and everything else. But after a while, uh, companies can become they forget that to grow, you have to keep marketing, you have to keep building that story <clears throat> uh, as you as you go. Um, uh, and I think essentially that's what, what happens. So from my own perspective, I really believe in decentralization, allowing uh, people to thrive 
or fail or fail. Mm. Uh, and if they fail, then you have to manage that as a managers and change it and change the people that like to work in that environment. But if you want fast decision making and, and allow companies to grow quickly, it works in a, it's a much, much better environment and much more pleasurable environment to work in than being told what to do. Yeah, no, indeed. Well, it's very interesting what you say about the agility of smaller businesses or that mentality of startups, which is, is hard. Once you move up, I mean, Steve Jobs and Apple, right? He was great in the early days. Then they fired him because they wanted professional management. But professional management comes in and compliance and bureaucracy. So, um, you know, and I, yeah. I didn't criticize my own employer. We're, we're very agile, actually, as an institution. But, you know, we're a public body, too. So we've got to be careful with public money, et cetera. So it's a very valid point. Are you still managing uh, colleagues, em- employees, or are you now managing more clients? Uh, I'm doing both, uh, actually. <laughs> um, I've, at the moment, I'm responsible for uh, our mergers and acquisitions. I'm responsible for all the group's product. Um, uh, structure, uh, all our product management and development. Um, I look after uh, all the group marketing uh, globally, and I also have responsibility for um, all the key customers globally, and our agency network, which is in all the uh, all the other countries other than the major uh, the major markets like Europe and US, etc. So we we have an agency network of. You know, 60 different agents that work in Africa and Middle East and all the way around the world. So I've also got responsibility for those guys. Um, so I, uh, I don't spend as much time today with customers as I've done in the past, yeah. but I never lose contact, uh, with the customer end. That to me is the most critically important uh, area. I spend, uh, uh, the last few years in the U.S., I, I also had responsibility for developing the robotics business, uh, which, again, was a startup um, uh, five years ago, and, and we built it into a nice business now in the U.S. Um, and uh, that, of course, again, very, very much customer-driven, te- highly technical, but um, but also uh, working very, very closely with a lot of uh, a lot of major companies. Uh, one of the pleasures in this this sort of business we're in because we're dealing in uh, higher end automation is that we get to talk to nearly every large company that you can think of on the planet. Um, we're working with all these different uh, operations. And uh, so uh, it, it's interesting that, I mean, it's something that we do every day. This is what what we do. But, and some companies, of course, uh, some of the bigger companies, even they always think some of some of them think they know better than we do about how to do things. But as we remind them, we do this every day. Uh, They do a project occasionally, but we do it all the time. So we do about three and a half thousand projects a year uh, in in the business today. Well, amazing. How how many direct reports would you have then that, you know, sort of your senior management team that report directly into you to manage all these different elements and, and around the world? Uh, right now, um, I have about 25 people, I think, reporting direct. And a lot more under those, but uh, reporting direct. That's a lot. You know, management theory books might say 8, 10, or 12, 25. Yeah, yeah. A lot. <laughs> yeah but we're, we're just actually, we're, we're in one of those throws now. I'm trying to reduce reduce it, but we've just had 
some restructuring and uh, in some of this centralization stuff. So I've suddenly got a lot more reports that I'm trying to re- suddenly trying to reduce down again. It's too many. It does sound like it. I mean, Craggy, that's um, five a day, two hours a day, just on keeping up to speed with their emails, I guess. Now, my students will be shouting at the radio, Adrian, ask me are there any jobs or careers. I mean, is this something that we should, uh, you know, do you take interns? In, what way you recruit We certainly do. No, we certainly do take in, interns, yes. Um, and, um, and also we, uh, we take interns and we'll put, put them in different countries depending on where they want to be. So, um, we, we take interns every year in US, in Europe, uh, in, in the different countries. And most of the senior management, we've also pushed our, our, our own sons and daughters through, uh, yeah. the operation in different ways. Yeah. Uh, just to, uh, as a learning curve in the, in the, in the period. But, but young engineers, we love young engineers uh, coming through to the operation. Many of them come back afterwards. Interesting. Okay, well, next time you're in Northampton, perhaps come and talk to some of my colleagues here. Now, this is a fast-moving industry, right, technology. You know, how do you keep up to date? Other than, as you say, listening to your customers, you probably got your, um, well, your competitors or the, you know, your large, large organizations that are innovating. But what do you read or how do you keep abreast of so many different uh, areas of what is IT or artificial intelligence, robotics, all this stuff. Very difficult. Um, today it is moving so quickly that um, it is it's impossible to be totally up to date everywhere. And as you get bigger, you start to specialize. Um, you know, so we have areas of the company, for example, that have that we're working uh, heavily in advanced robotics, and uh, you know things like. Mixed skew palletizing and different things like different technologies of, the, of, of this type. Um, so we have specialist teams that are working in those areas and they have to be up to date in those areas. If we're working in, you know, um, uh, high speed conveying or, or a clean room technology, we have different teams working in those areas. You can't be an expert on everything. Um, but um, from a personal perspective, the, 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 the thing that you have to do most of all is to be inquisitive. Right. Uh, you have to be inquisitive. You have to um, want to know what's going on around you, and and to spend enough time to uh, to join a few conferences now and again. I always try to do a couple of year in terms of conferences. I always try to to get to a number of shows each year just to see what's happening with the market and the competitors and to talk to people. Essentially, uh, just talk to a lot of people. Um, and you'll find in your own organization some of the young guys who are uh, relatively new, uh, uh, you know, in terms of age in the, in the business. I found out um, only a few months ago that one of the guys I have working in the um, uh, working in my operation in in US in the robotics area that he'd been on robot wars around the world. <laughs> uh, I didn't know uh, actually. I didn't know that he was such a you know, he'd done so many things. So these guys are enthusiasts as well. Yeah, you know, they've they've done some uh, some 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 great work. So you have to be inquisitive, and you have to talk to people, and you have to read, and you have to see what's uh, what's go- what's going on. But uh, there's no way that I today can be an expert in in everything. It's no. uh, it, it's it's almost impossible. But what I do have is enough experience to. Uh, with thousands of projects and applications and things we've done over the years, 
I know what works, what doesn't work, where to go, how to get answers. I mean, that was the best advice I think that ever uh, I had many years ago. Uh, and it was essentially, you know, as an engineer, uh, you're not trained to know everything. It's impossible. But you should not know uh, how to approach a problem. Yep. And go and find the answer. Yeah, very good. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I completely, completely concur with you. Just keeping your head, keeping your head above the parapet. I think many of us kind of stay in our goldfish bowl, in our comfort zone, as you mentioned before, but we've actually got to be out looking above the parapet. What's happening? Where are the storm clouds? Where are the, the sunshine, you know, coming? I certainly teach strategy from that perspective. Fast moving world. You've got to have your antenna out there and learn to skim read. <laughs> And gradually yeah. you get to be able, oh, that one I need to dig deeper into. You know, your, yeah. your judgment will tell you that's interesting. Didn't know that. Let me find out more. Yeah. Well, I tell you, one of the best sources today uh, for information is YouTube. <laughs> yeah. It's phenomenal. Uh, I mean, the, the, the power of that, uh, the, that site is phenomenal in terms of uh, quickly finding out what you don't know about certain techniques or, or, or uh, technology. Yeah. Interesting. Before we change gear, perhaps you should just give us, um, you know, how do people find out more about your organization, Paul, if they want to have a look at the interns or the careers opportunities? Yeah, just go on to www.flexlink.com. Flexlink.com. Flexlink.com. And that will tell you a little bit about um, what we do as a company, flexlink.com. Okay. Now, I just wanted to pick up because we, um, a couple of things here. The um, you mentioned the UK. Some well, and some people are happy to get to five million, you know, seven million turnover, and don't really want to keep going. I think I've, I've read a couple of articles recently that that is a malaise of the of the UK. We don't have the same ambition, and of course, what's happening is a lot of American companies are coming over, taking those companies who've done a lot of the initial groundwork and then buying them. And the scale up is happening outside the UK, and we're missing some opportunities. That seems to be something that you are indicating is uh, you know g- general, no? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a fact, and and. It's one of the reasons that I'm actually working in also in the uh, mergers and acquisitions area um, mm. for our own business in that we're looking for bright companies with bright ideas and good products that um, don't have the ability to scale. Um, and what we we can do, of course, we have the depth and the size of op- operation now that we can scale things and, and bring them to international markets. So, it's it's expensive. It's difficult for smaller companies to to, to make, that, make that set change um, because of the uh, you know the the inherent costs involved in doing so uh, when you don't have that infrastructure. I mean, uh, one interesting thing is when we started this company, as I said, we were fortunate to be part part of a big international company called SKF Big Bear Company. But the way we did it um, fast, uh, the way we grew it so fast. We basically rang every SKF company around the world and said, can we borrow an office? Uh, and I said, any sales we make, we'll put back into your business and don't worry about it. We'll, we're not worried about consolidating profits or anything. We just said, we want to get the business going. So we just piggybacked all over the world on the infrastructure and and then got the business going. And once the business was running, we extracted it. Yeah. 
right so that that's the way that we got we got this uh thing moving so so quickly but smaller companies trying to become international is very expensive uh so yeah we're always looking for bright ideas for bright bright products and uh good people which is the most critical thing the people part of it is the most difficult part of uh, the business so far I think that's true everywhere, isn't it? Now, um, you're in the U.S. Uh, we've got interesting year with a U.S. election coming up. So we would imagine a British election coming up. Any comment you want to give us from the U.S. on the U.S. political scene? Wow, it's frightening. Sure. <laughs> Good word. Good word. <laughs> we've. I lived here through uh, through the last uh, uh, Trump reign and. Uh, there's no doubt that he's going to get the nomination now for for the uh, Republican Party. That's without doubt. Um, so he will be the... Uh, and I don't think that uh, even though some of the states are barring him from uh, from running in those states, I, I can't see getting enough traction to stop him. I think there would be... It'd be so difficult to actually stop that now. Mm. So we're into a difficult situation where... Um, there aren't good choices because the uh, the Democratic uh, president, President Biden, whilst they're highly experienced, is certainly showing his his age. And uh, mm. in reality, you should have a younger incumbent fighting this battle right now. Mm. But I don't think that's going to happen. Um, my my guess, my honest guess, is that uh, even though Joe Biden is uh, is getting old. I still think because of all the issues when it comes to a, 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 a national election, I think um, he will likely win out uh, in that process. Um, but it's very difficult to call. It's almost imp- impossible to call right now. Um, but there's a lot of trepidation in the in the US right now. It's It's polarized. The market is polarized. Well, I can see that you either love him or hate him, and the people that love him really do, don't they? In leaps and bounds, it's really quite fascinating from this side of the uh, of the pond. Yeah, it's tribal. Mm. Mm. And I think he's talking to uh, some you know, deep issue too that we can't ignore. You know, why do people feel drawn to him? Because he's touching some raw nerves of things that are not right or do need to be addressed by the. Establishment inverted commas. Well, it's cult. It's it's cult like um, because you know if you if you repeat the same message and the simple message again and again and again, then it, it gets some traction against some people. And the reality is, the this MAGA, the older MAGA movement, you make, make America great again. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're trying to turn back the clock to nineteen fifty. Um, when America felt it was wealthy compared to the rest of the world and all the other issues that were going on. Um, and they're trying to get the same feel good factor as, as you had, you know, all those years ago. You cannot turn the clock back. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. You can't go back in, in, in time. Um, and you can't take the genie, put the genie back in the bottle. Uh, right now, I mean, it, it's a, uh, America is more than anyway is it where is a multicultural society uh but it's facing the same problems as all the developed countries are all over the world it's the the major thing i think of this century is with the is the movement of people um and it's 
it's an intractable problem right now. Um, there's nobody really has got a good solution for it. No, indeed. Where, last question: Where do you uh, where you prefer to live? You know, where are you more comfortable in the UK or the US? You and your wife. Wow, that's a very difficult question. You know, living in the US is 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 we find very easy. Um, life is easier in the US than it is in the UK. Um, uh, things work better um, uh, as long as, for instance, you ha- you're in a position to have private healthcare, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, if you're in this that this situation, everything functions and works easier. Life is easier. It's it, it's um, it's it's more pleasurable from that perspective. Um, but my roots are in England. That's where I was born, and that's where you know, family and friends and everybody else are, uh, still are. So it's a difficult question. What I really like is the diff- is the change, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and uh, we came back last night, as I said, from uh, from England. We've been there since uh, early uh, December. Um, I'm going to be here until uh, sometime in the middle of May, and then I'll be in the UK for you know, uh, three months or so, and then back to US. And and in the meantime, traveling wherever I need to travel to, I'll probably be backwards and forwards to Europe in, 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 during those periods for different meetings and things anyway. Um, but actually, I quite like the change, you know, from, um, from moving to England and moving back to America. Uh, whilst I'm fit enough to do that, um, it's, a, it's not a bad way of life. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing some insights into your life and career. Really quite um, amazing. And uh, I'm sure you've stimulated a lot of interest and uh, we'll make sure that some of our students listen. Point them in the right direction of www.flexlink.com. We've had the pleasure of talking with Paul McAllen, Director of Business Development from Flexlink Systems, living between Northamptonshire and Boston. What a lovely um, contrast. But, Paul, thank you so much for your busy schedule, having just arrived in the uh, in the U.S. as well. So I'm sure you've got plenty to get on with, but really do appreciate it. And, um, yes, hopefully you'll come and talk to our students on one of your trips back to the U.K. Thank you ever so much. My pleasure. All right. Thank you. Well and good luck. NLive's Community Notice Board, sponsored by Voluntary Impact Northamptonshire, supporting existing and helping to launch good neighbour schemes across Northampton. Homestart Northampton supports families with young children. They provide expert support helping families through their challenging times. Homestart is there for parents when they need them the most because childhood can't wait. Volunteers offer support, friendship and practical help to families under stress in their own homes, preventing family crisis and breakdown. If you are a parent, grandparent or step-parent with experience of young children and family life and are able to visit a Northampton family for two to three hours each week, then get in contact. Call them on 01604 627 NLive's Community Notice Board, sponsored by Voluntary Impact Northamptonshire, supporting existing and helping to launch good neighbour schemes across Northampton. To get your message on air, email noticeboard at nliveradio.com. 106.9 NLive. When business owners, directors and key decision makers want to know what's happening in Northamptonshire, they turn to Business Times. Over 10,000 copies are delivered every month and the pages are filled with positive local business stories. Respected, trusted and always relevant. Business Times is the perfect way to get your business in front of the people that matter. So get Business Times working for you. Click business-times.co 
Radio.co.uk, Business Times, positive about business in North Hans. At NNBN, we support local businesses, charities and organisations. We bring local people together. We promote growth and success and we support our members. NNBN has a proven track record in helping members of our community get seen and be heard. It costs from just £20 a month to become a member and you'll benefit from advertising, events, engagement, support and money-saving discounts. If you're a local business, charity or organisation, join us today at nnbn.co.uk. Connecting Northampton. Online and live.
Many thanks to Paul for that interview, telling us a little bit about his work, his career and his jet-setting life indeed. OK, well, you also heard there James Brown, of course, with the song Living in America. See what I did there? Corny connection, I know. But anyway, hope you enjoyed that. Right, my next guest is somebody that's into fast living indeed, or certainly fast driving, and she's been fascinated by motorsport in the past few years and is forging her way, her career there, both as an engineer but also as a driver. So we'll be listening to a young lady, Eliza Seville, after this appropriate music.
Well, we have many guests on the show, and none give me more pleasure, really, when we talk to younger people, perhaps up-and-coming talent in one or different areas of their lives. And I'm delighted today to welcome a young lady who is an engineer, but not only an engineer in the motorsport, a racing driver as well. So it's a big warm welcome to Eliza Seville. Eliza, welcome to the show indeed. Um, You've got a big passion in your life, haven't you? I do. Um, Yes, my life pretty much completely revolves around motorsport. (laughs) And when did this passion start? Um, Probably not until I was about 15 or 16 years old. Um, I started seeing videos on YouTube of uh, a guy called Ken Block doing rallying and and people drifting, and that's what initially piqued my interest. And is it rallying um, that you're sort of following, or are you into any other type of racing? What type of car? Because you are racing. What type of cars do you race? Yeah, so I'm I'm actually a circuit racer. Um, So, yeah, I raced Mazda Super Cup last year, and then this year the plan is to race MG cup in the slicks class now tell me do they look like formula one cars do they look like go-karts do they look like rally cars uh no they're like sports cars um yes like tin tops okay so have you done what people like lewis hamilton has done and and moved up from go-karting and you know tried everything from the youngest age you could uh yes essentially i just started a lot later in life so i did start karting um First of all, well, actually, my first, my very first experience on track was driving a uh, autonomous electric robo car for <laughs> the company I work for, <laughs> really? which is um yeah quite was quite an experience. Um, they let the mechanics test drive the cars, so that was my very first experience on track. And then I started karting promptly after because I realised how much I loved it. Yeah, and what do you like? Is it the speed? Is it the the thrill, the excitement, the risk. I mean, what is it that draws you? I think it's all of that combined, really. The the adrenaline um, you get from it. And it's also, I I like the rewarding feeling once you kind of, because once you get faster, shaving off those final few tenths of a second on each of your lap times. And it's kind of, you almost can never achieve the perfect lap. So there's always an endless amount of improvement you can make, um, mm-hmm. which makes it a great challenge. And so you're not at all competitive then? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm extremely competitive. <laughs> <laughs> and what do all the lads think? Do they try to beat you? Do they, you know, is is this a, a a sport? Do you have a lot of other uh, female contenders, or are you sort of pretty uh, much alone there with all the guys? Uh, yeah, it's definitely mostly guys. I have raced against a few women. Um, I'm doing a sim racing series at the moment, which is all women. Uh, but in real life, in karting and in racing, I've only been one of a handful. Um, I'd say almost five percent compared to the rest of the grid. Really? Now here's a here's a loaded question. I'm sure the listeners are of you. Who are better drivers, women or men? <laughs> um, I don't think it's a question of gender, really. I guess it's just who's <laughs> quickest at the end of the day. And so, some days I have been so. <laughs> Very good, very diplomatic. So tell me then, you know, you, I introduced you as an engineer and then a racing driver. So what do, what's your day job? Um, so I'm system support engineer for the GB3 and GB4 championships, which are, they're like those single-seater race cars, like they look like little F1 cars, basically, um, and they're the stepping stone to get to F1. Okay, and are you allowed to drive those in your job? 
Uh, no, unfortunately not. I just look after the system. So any electrical issues or systems issues or ECU issues I, I deal with. Okay. And how did you get into this? Because I think you took a, uh, you know, th- this passion came evident in some of your schooling, no? Uh, yeah. So it was when I was at school that I, I developed the uh, interest in, in cars. Um, and then I took A-levels, um, which enabled me to get into motorsport college. Um, so I went to the National College for Motorsport at Silverstone to study to become a race mechanic. I think I always wanted to do the driving as well, but I did really enjoy being hands-on and building the cars, um, but obviously not having the, the backing to be able to race myself at that time. Um, yeah. I went the mechanical route, but I've absolutely loved every minute of that that journey. So how much time uh, do you get time off to do the racing that you now do? Uh, yeah, so I, I will book off the time to do the race. Most of the races are on the weekend, but sometimes there's a Friday test day or or we do testing in the week prior. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will have to take time off, but it is definitely a lot to fit into a busy schedule. Well, I can imagine, but are they very supportive, the the company you work for? Uh, yes, they are, yeah. So they see you as a, a, as a ta- talent going to be on that podium. I mean, do you aspire to... to, to... You know, Formula One, is that in your sights? Um, no, I think, unfortunately, I was a little bit too late to the to the party to, to kind of go down that route. When you look at drivers like Max Verstappen kind of entered F1 once he was 17 years old. Mm. Um, I mean, it doesn't have to be that way, but a lot of times they're looking at much younger drivers. Um, however, GT racing is a lot more kind of open and not age-based. Um, so my kind of goals, um, being realistic <laughs> is to, uh, get into GTs, but I also want to race at the 24 hours of Le Mans. Um, cause that was the race I worked on as a mechanic in my first year. And I just absolutely fell in love with, with it. So, uh, to go back there as a driver would be the aim for me. Okay. Fantastic. Now, so you are, well, what do we call you? Professional, semi-professional? Cause you do have sponsors. Um, which please do tell us who the sponsors are, but you know how would you class yourself in in racing driver terms, and is it something you could become full time professional one day? Yeah, definitely. I would say set yeah semi professionals at the moment until I'm kind of paid to do it by maybe a, a factory team. Mm-hmm. Um, so the aim is to very much become professional. Um, they have different driver gradings: bronze, silver, and gold. Um, so once you kind of get yourself up to at least a silver you can become pro um and get paid for it um and then yeah thanks to my current sponsors at the moment pagola drinks fiber marketing and poppy design studios and also uh glitterbugs hair hair and beauty um, oh my goodness me what you mean they want you to look your best when you get in the racing car do they yeah yeah it's great actually uh she's been styling my hair into braids before i put the um the helmet on um to kind of keep my hair all intact and and the looks you get in the pit lane is is brilliant <laughs> <laughs> tremendous and hopefully then a lot of photographs taken so um i assume i mean that's good of your sponsors too and uh, do they you know they cover the costs i guess of the kit or are they are they giving you some extra as well you know for you to develop or to be able to buy out time from your day job um, yeah, so at the moment, all the, the funding that I get from my sponsors goes towards the race season. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, very much so because it's unfortunately such an expensive sport. Um, so everything goes towards that and even some of my own funding as well. Um, so yeah, anything I 
I get goes towards that and then the more testing I can do the quicker I'll be and the more successful I'll be so it's really important to me that all the the funding is put in the right place. Indeed now um, Eliza you know how do people find out more about you or follow you and your career? Um, so if they're interested in sponsorship, um, they can email me at eliza.seville at outlook.com. I also have a website, which is elizaseville.racing.co.uk, um, or all my social medias are Eliza Seville Racing. All right, so it's eliza.seville, so E-L-I-Z-A dot S-E-V-I-L-L-E at outlook.com. Or Eliza Seville Racing, if you Google, you should be able to get your social medias, yes? Yeah, I'm on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and LinkedIn, so. Okay, and you, uh, well, yes, I would imagine, and because um, you're, you know, you're you're in your uh, early 20s, am I right? allowed to say that? Yes. <laughs> so you should be very clued up on social media. Um yeah. So with all those contact details, yes, you're 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 asking the listeners then what you're looking for is sponsorship or if not that, just follow you and drive up your social media interest because clearly, I guess, sooner or later, sponsors want to see that their brand is being seen by the general public, yes? Yes, exactly. All right. Anything else you want to ask our listeners? When's the next race? Where can they go and see you in action? Yeah, so the, we're racing all over the UK and then maybe one race in at Spa, um, which is an F1 track, so that would be brilliant. Um, but, yeah, the first race is on the 23rd of March, and that's at Brands Hatch Circuit, which is a really cool place to go. Mm. Um, but I'll be posting all of my uh, dates where I'm racing on my social medias, and we're racing pretty much every month until October. Fantastic. And when is Le Mans, 24-hour Le Mans, then? Uh, that's usually in June. Okay, so it's too soon to think you'll be there this year, right? Yes, definitely won't be there this year, but hopefully kind of in the next few years is the aim to get to there. No, I think it's tremendous that you have uh, this aim and, and this you know this wonderful passion. Who's your hero in motorsport? Oh, um, I have to say Lewis Hamilton is one definitely because of where he's come from to where he's got to. You know, his dad worked two jobs so that he could go karting and then He's managed to go all the way to F1 and become, you know, world champion multiple times. Um, yeah. But there's also two girls out there at the moment doing great stuff, Dorian Pan and Sophia Flourish, who are in F3. And Dorian's been competing in LMP2 class um, and they're doing really well. So it's good mm. to see girls up at the top level showing showing everyone that we can do it. <laughs> no, indeed. Uh, I and mean, have you met all of these? Uh, no, I've not met any of them, actually. So where's your work? Is it at Silverstone still? You've studied there, but are you working on the Silverstone circuit area or not? Uh, no, I work at a different track now, uh, Bedford Autodrome. Okay, so still pending. And do you get to go to the F1? Have you been to the uh, Silverstone F1 day? Yeah, I have been to Silverstone actually last year. I went um, and then I've also worked um, when I was doing historics motorsport mechanic. Mm-hmm. Um Two of our races were supporting the F1, so I went to the F1 in Paul Ricard, um, which was great. Mm. Well, my wife's family are um, big motorsport and race fan uh, freaks and motorbikes and all sorts because they they have a farm. So even my kids, you know, the first motorbike, I think there were four when they're riding a cut-down motorbike. And my wife's uncle, let me get this right, raced against... 
Oh no! Is it Fangio who was in the fifties, right? Yeah. Right. Well, so he raced there when they had a circuit in the old Barcelona circuit. So I, I haven't quite got the bug as much, um, I have to say. But my wife's family will be very, um, and my, my children will be very interested to, to take a look. So Eliza, you've got great ambitions. You're a young and up-and-coming talent. You're a Northamptonshire last born and bred. Is that right? Uh, no, actually, I'm from Cheltenham, but live here ever since I started in motorsport. That's good enough. That's good enough. <laughs> and and we met at um, the or through the NNBN uh, with Simon Cox was our guest editor a couple of weeks ago. He's going to be doing a monthly show. Um, so you've joined that, obviously, I guess, because you are becoming a, a little mini business and because you want to reach out to other businesses to help and support you, I suppose. Huh? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, look, um, we've been talking to an up-and-coming talent, Eliza Seville. She is a an engineer in motorsport, but more importantly, a racing driver with a great passion to get to the 24-hour race at Le Mans, and there's some great books about that. Um, you've raced at Spa. You're here at Lewis Hamilton. If you want to find out more about Eliza and her career and her racing, you can do so at uh, just following Eliza Seville Racing um, or contact Eliza at eliza.seville at outlook.com and I think you said just tell us again your your website uh, yeah the website is elizasevilleracing.co.uk elizasevilleracing.co.uk well look I really do wish you every success I think it's fantastic you know to follow your dreams uh, do stay safe and keep well but uh, hopefully we'll hear more about you and if you get any of these great landmarks please do come back on the show and Tell us them. Tell us all about them. So, Eliza Seville, many thanks indeed.
Well, one, to have your toes tapping, to be singing out loud to, and indeed singing out loud, toes tapping and dancing around the kitchen table, Diana Ross and the Supremes with Chain Reaction. That's, I find, a really upbeat song. I did use it a few years ago to have one guest introduce the next guest next week. I'm not sure if I can introduce that. It got a bit complicated. You, you know, if you're going to do it, you've got to do it consistently. But I hope you enjoyed the song, and I hope you enjoyed the interview with uh, Eliza Seville there, with her sort of insight into her life uh, as somebody that loves and has a passion for motorsport many thanks to you eliza by the way if you missed any of the interviews or you'd like to hear them again you can do so of course at nliveradio.com forward slash open for business that's open for with the number four business um, and they will be a pro- podcast very shortly once i get round to doing just a couple of words of description so that martin steers the station manager can put them up but anyway they are available on the listen again function for up to two months Right, next up is Millen Shah, the High Sheriff of Northamptonshire, a businessman, runs a business in the county. He's been very much associated with the county for many years in very many guises. Um, great public service indeed, and um, not least as a governor, in fact, chair of the university for a while. But Millen is this year's High Sheriff. He's coming towards the end of his year, which I think ends in April. But uh, he's going to tell us a little bit about what that involves, what's been special to him and uh, what he's um, looked at and covered in the past 12 months. I hope he forgives me for this next tune, though, that introduces Millen, because I I sometimes do get terribly mixed up between the High Sheriff of Northamptonshire and you know what I'm going to say, right? Well, no, I'm not going to say it. But anyway, enjoy this classic theme. NLive's Community Notice Board, sponsored by Voluntary Impact Northamptonshire, supporting existing and helping to launch good neighbour schemes across Northampton. Homestart Northampton supports families with young children. They provide expert support helping families through their challenging times. Homestart is there for parents when they need them the most because childhood can't wait. Volunteers offer support, friendship and practical help to families under stress in their own homes, preventing family crisis and breakdown. If you are a parent, grandparent or step-parent with experience of young children and family life and are able to visit a Northampton family for two to three hours each week, then get in contact. Call them on 01604 627 692. NLive's Community Notice Board, sponsored by Voluntary Impact Northamptonshire, supporting existing and helping to launch good neighbour schemes across Northampton. To get your message on air, email noticeboard at nliveradio.com. 106.9 NLive. When business owners, directors and key decision makers want to know what's happening in Northamptonshire, they turn to Business Times. Over 10,000 copies are delivered every month and the pages are filled with positive local business stories. Respected, trusted and always relevant. Business Times is the perfect way to get your business in front of the people that matter. So get Business Times working for you. Click business-times.co.uk Business Times. Positive about business in North Hands. At NNBN, we support local businesses, charities and organisations. We bring local people together. We promote growth and success and we support our members. NNBN has a proven track record in helping members of our community get seen and be heard. It costs from just £20 a month to become a member and you'll benefit from advertising, events, engagement, support and money-saving discounts. If you're a local business, charity or organisation, join us today at nnbn.co.uk. Connecting Northampton. N Live. Like us on Facebook. 
riding through the glen. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his band of men. Feared by the bad, loved by the good. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Robin Hood. He called the greatest archers to a tavern on the green. They vowed to help the people of the king. They handled all the trouble on the English country scene and still found plenty of time to sing. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his band of men. Feared by the bad, loved by the good. Robin Hood, Robin Hood. Time to turn to the uh, current high sheriff of Northamptonshire, a local businessman who has taken up the post, coming towards the end of his year, actually. But um, a warm welcome to Millen Shah. Millen, welcome to the show. I think we were talking before we came on air. You've got eight weeks left, right, of your year as high sheriff. Yes, well, look, thank you, Adrian, and uh, it's a pleasure to join you. Yes, eight weeks. Um, the year goes quickly. Um, Eight weeks till the next declaration. At the next declaration, a new high sheriff will be sworn in by a local judge. Um, and I will hang up my sword, as they say. <laughs> hang up your sword and your lovely velvet outfit. Yes, yes. Um, absolutely, that outfit will go. Um, it's worn for a year, but it's, it's, it's worn an awful lot in that year. <laughs> Did you enjoy that sort of uh, traditional and ceremonial part of the role? It is a key part of the role. Um, a lot of the issues that you're dealing with are contemporary issues. A lot of the issues that we come across in the criminal justice system are, are, are real and modern day. And um, walking around in lace and velvet is suitable on some occasions. It's not appropriate on others. So um, it's horses for courses, as they say. But it's always a pleasure to go out in the uniform. It always draws a discussion yeah. um, on the history of the role and you know, and on the, on the sartorial nature of the actual court attire, as it's called. Court attire, indeed. Well, perhaps you should tell us what is the role of the High Sheriff of Northamptonshire, for those that are not familiar with it. Well, it's, um, it's an ancient role. It's one of the oldest in the country. It goes back to sort of 750, 800 AD Anglo-Saxon times. Um, and as is unique in this country, you know, we have a constitution that's unbroken over a millennium. So... That is um, the 
the sheriff's role is a key part of that alongside the monarchy. And within each bailiwick, and we divide them into 55 in England and Wales, within each bailiwick, there is a high sheriff approximately corresponding to the 1974 sort of administrative boundaries of the shires. Um, and the high sheriff looks after the interests of law and order, specifically the criminal justice system, on behalf of the monarch. Okay. Now, it's an annual thing. We have also the Lord Lieutenant, which is uh, more until, I think, 75. So, you know, many people will be thinking, well, what about Robin Robin Hood and the High Sheriff of Nottingham, of course, which is easy to get confused, High Sheriff of Nottingham and High Sheriff of Northampton. Why was it an annual rotation or, or an annual change? If you look on Wikipedia... Um, it will show from probably about 1070 to 1090, the, you know, the first high sheriff they can find, uh, probably, I think it's William of Keynes. Um, that was 20 years. But then after that, it slips into um, an annual or a sort of two, three-year stint. I, I have a belief that in the 1260s, a monarch specifically put into um, law that the high sheriff, or there was an edict that the high sheriff's role will be for one year at the time, because the high sheriff was an alternative power base to the monarch. Remember, in in those early medieval times, the high sheriff held the militia locally, mm. was judge, jury, and executioner, and held held tax collecting powers. You know, you were alluding to the sheriff of Nottingham. It was those famous tax collecting powers that uh, Robin Hood was attacking. Mm. And I suppose tax collecting, handling the king's money, queen's money, that might well have been a reason to change every so often, not to allow any complacency or any abuse to to come into the uh, situation. Absolutely. But, I mean, it is a lovely, uh, one of those lovely traditions, I have to say. And to you know, to see you and and when we've had the lady high sheriffs in their outfit, it it it, it adds something definitely to an occasion. Now, just talk about occasions. Um, your diary must be because you you get around and meet an awful lot of people in the year and i think you were telling me that your diary for the next eight weeks is absolutely chock-a-block right not even room to, to stop and have a cup of tea probably <laughs> um there, there, there's always tea and there's always cake um <laughs> that's something that is quite uh liberally interspersed within most of the events you go to <laughs> but um it is quite a full diary because it covers a wide range of activity um there's a degree of elasticity built in because if a judge if a high court judge decides to visit then i have to squeeze that be you know host, hosting senior judiciary as they visit the county or royal visits as as um royal family visits the county those things we will always squeeze in mm. but apart from that um it's a pretty full diary um of visiting grassroots organizations i'm with the fire service um interacting with the police all you know all sorts of stuff along the way do you have any influence? Is it taking an interest in and supporting, or do you actually, you know, are you consulted on anything that you can have an influence upon? No, it's, um, I am consulted in the sense that people will run ideas past me on all sorts of things um, and any subsequent high sheriff, but that's keeping us in the loop and that's really informally taking our counsel on matters. But it's a purely ceremonial role. Um, if you think about it, through the centuries, most of the powers that the High Sheriff had were um, extracted and put into separate institutions that then could be held democratically accountable. So the prison service, the probation service, the police, which is a, a, a newer institution you know, in the last few centuries, 
um, all of these the tax collection and the exchequer, all these activities have been put into institutions that are held accountable, mm. and it's been taken away from the arbitrary power of the sheriff. Similarly, the the militia has moved away, the army, the armed forces, etc. So the constitution of this country is such that we're accountable to parliament and parliament is sovereign Mm. and everything runs through there. So really this sort of a role is ceremonial, but um, you have soft power, you have the power to convene people, you have the power to ask questions um, and you have the opportunity to join the dots. So there's a lot of what I do is connecting people. Mm. Very interesting. But I think you were doing a lot of that anyway. Now, you do have a a life outside of the uh, shrivelty, which I think is the right way or right word. Um, And, you know, you're a businessman, a successful businessman in your own right. Just tell us a little bit about the other side of your life, Mern. Uh, well, look on the on the business front, it's you know relatively sp- straightforward. I'm a, a small businessman. I um, run a small food ingredients manufacturing business based in Wellingborough in the county. Um, last year was 30 years that I've been there, and before that, I was at school in the county, and I grew up in this county. So um, it's a county that I love in in any way that I can. Uh, assist on different things. I've had great opportunities over the years with the Chamber of Commerce, with the economic development side, and uh, as we used to meet with the university some years back. So Mm. this opportunity to take on the high sheriff's role, um, the shrievalty, as you rightly called it, uh, that was an absolute privilege. Um, And it comes sort of a good decade after I finished chairing the university when we were planning this waterside campus. So it's a Mm. great opportunity to reconnect with the county. No, indeed. Um, and you say uh, small business, but spice trader, I think, and governance professional, you also put on your LinkedIn. So, you know, I think you're a very experienced um, well, chair and um, non-executive director, trustee of organizations like the university. Is, is that still something you've been able to keep up? Portfolio of sort of NED uh, roles? Yeah, I think, look, um, governance professional on LinkedIn, well done on finding that. Um I, when I left university, I didn't sort of, you know, qualify in any particular profession, except I did become, I was a guinea pig for the Institute of Directors uh, for their chartered director program way back in 1999. And I I think I qualified in 2000. So that's a good quarter century ago. Hmm. And it was that they were trying to up the standards for directors across the UK. They're trying to create a gold standard for directors. Um, but from that, I focused entirely on non-profit governance. So although, obviously, I run a small family firm, um, the entirety of my governance career has been on non-profits. Mm-hmm. And some of it is corporate governance in the sense that the non-profits are constituted as companies, maybe limited by guarantee. Um, and some of the work um, is just initiatives. You know, a lot of the work that I've done with the UN on the International Year of Pulses, on the Committee on Food Security – um, last year was the International Year of Millets. So these are ways to rebalance the food system. So all my work on that front is quite often just, you know, task and finish groups, committees that are set up for a specific project. Mm. But but these are all non-profits and these all have um, social aims and, and a social agenda. Mm. Well, no, you, you know, you are a big supporter of the county. I've certainly got to know you over the years in various guises where I think you have very generously given of your time to help and support either the sector and, and with Rachel Mallows, of course, in the food and drink sector or the university. Um, 
where you were my chair for several years indeed um of all these things then what what would you say you know gives you the most pleasure or what and, and what is uh, Millen's greatest value added to these various organizations and causes well look i i think in northamptonshire really it's been a privilege because you know these opportunities come along to to serve different segments of the county um if I go back 25 years, the, the, the Chamber of Commerce was great fun as the businesses got together and we would do whatever we could. We would work with the IOD and the FSB and the CBI and we would do whatever we could to make sure that we had um, good opportunities for business within the county. But the realization came on that a lot of the drivers for that um, come from central and local government and in fact there was a tier of regional government in those days rdas mm. from 90s from sort of the late 90s through to 2010 and then when the coalition came in in 2010 it, it uh, um, transferred to local enterprise partnerships and as we sit here today that model is now coming to an end um so from from working on behalf of business, it became clear that we have to work with government. And so that's where I started getting involved in Northamptonshire Enterprise Partnership, NEL, NEP, those sorts of entities, and working in partnership with um, with local and regional government. And that actually made – that probably made the biggest difference that I could see in terms of to the county. And from there, I then got involved in the university. And obviously, the university – um, it's just wonderful to walk around that waterside campus as a, as a sort of tangible outcome of some of the discussions we were having mm. in my in my day. Um, it really, uh, and that is enterprise. You know, the, the concept of being an entrepreneur is to create something out of nothing. And if you look at the resources we had at the university and what we've created at Waterside. Um, as a campus, and I know you still you still walk that campus on a regular basis. Yep. It's uh, it is phenomenal to to think um, of the transformation that was made there, because on the economic development side, I'd spent twenty years looking at that brownfield site, and you know we had spent so long trying to tempt developers to do something with that site, and then it's only when um, the enterprise zone was announced and we thought there's an opportunity that then the team at the university took it forward, and again. Remember, as chair of the university, whilst I'm not completely ceremonial, uh, which is what, you know, the chancellor's role there, but as chair, I'm a non-exec chair. And again, I don't have a huge amount of power. I don't pull that many levers. It's the executive team, the vice chancellor and his team in those days mm. that would make things happen. Mm. Well, so no, that's I'm... really where the credit has to go rather than to, you know, somebody like myself. But as you said earlier on, a, a connector, somebody with a broad vision or perspective uh, that joins dots. I think many of us are, you know, in a goldfish bowl, crisis managing right up at the coalface. It, it is a luxury. And I think a certain mindset that sort of leans back, sees a bigger picture, joins dots that others might not see. And it seems to me that you're one of those connectors, uh, Milan. Well, uh, look, thank you for saying so. Um, I don't know if I am, but I do lean on data quite heavily. So even in the early days, I remember at the Chamber of Commerce, we set, a, set up a joint venture with the university. And I'm talking probably about the year, sort of early 2000s. Um, the late Dr. Lisa Fleming was running it. And we would look at the data for the county. We became almost like an observatory for the county on data from economic development to, you know, all sorts of things. The index of multiple deprivation, I remember looking at in 
immense detail in those days, down to super output areas of, you know, you could see deprivation in parts of Wellingborough, Corby and Northampton mm. that was on a par with some of the worst parts of um, England and Wales. And all the way through tackling, you know, opportunities for business, economic development, and really trying to look at growth, I've always been conscious that there are these pockets across the county that are often forgotten about, where there are some very knotty problems. This is not just poverty. It's called an index of multiple deprivation, because these are, are problems that are intertwined with educational outcomes, health outcomes, and all sorts of other things. And as High Sheriff, many years later, coming back to look at the same data, um, I'm now seeing it firsthand. I'm, you know, I'm absolutely firsthand seeing what were statistics to me in those days are now real people to me because I'm meeting them firsthand. Whether I'm meeting them at an early stage when there are interventions designed to take a child that might be at risk of exclusion Mm. and work with them, or whether I'm seeing them at the other end in prison when they've gone through the entire criminal justice system and they're costing the state almost £50,000 per annum, um, at the end of that, and, you know, the difficulty is that once they come out of prison, statistically, uh, there is a degree of likelihood that they will go back, the recidivism problem. So, you know, these are, again, systemic problems in society, and it it really has been an eye-opener as sheriff to go in firsthand and look at these. And you've met people that are addressing those issues as well as the victims, shall we say, of those issues then? Yes. Um, I mean, clearly you meet a lot of charities of people doing good and trying to help. But so you've actually gone and seen where all, you know, the front line, where the problems, where the problems manifest themselves. And, of course, where people can get their lives, you know, off track a little bit. Yeah. Oh, Oh, completely, completely. So firstly, you've got an entire apparatus of the state working very hard with constrained resources. You know, if you think about a decade of austerity and then COVID and then the current circumstances, you've got an entire system working very hard to prevent um, people falling into the criminal justice system. And then as they do, they try and deal with them along the way such they don't progress to the next stage. Mm. So that entire infrastructure is there. In addition, that is supported by a huge um, charitable non-profit effort across the county. Some of them are national organizations, some of them are grassroots. And what I've seen in this county, some of it is what I would call you know, national best practice. So these are exemplars that we can take from our county and go and celebrate them far and wide up and down the country so people follow this sort of best practice. And as I said, I'm guided by data. So I like to see statistically the outcomes of these interventions that are being taken. Because, you know, sometimes we've put on a sticking plaster because it makes us feel good. Mm. Um, and that and that is understandable in many, many situations. But quite often we have to be guided by the data and the evidence as to really where we ought to be putting our resources. Um, th- there's one word you used that I always feel uncomfortable about, and that's victim. Because um, firstly... Uh, I have met victims. I mean, I've uh, and I, I've met sometimes not the victims because they're gone, but their families. So, for for example, we had the vigil uh, on a year of the knife angel coming to us, which was under um, Crispin, my predecessor as high sheriff, 
And we had a vigil one year later, and I met families who had lost loved ones to knife crime. Um, to, and, and, you know, that side is very, very real. And yet, I think you and I met either last week or the week before, you and I were looking at, we met at a, a, a project designed to take young you, young offenders and try and avoid them entering the formal criminal justice system yep. if a wraparound service can help them rebalance their lives. Mm-hmm. And as I said, these problems are knotty, so it does require a, a, a comprehensive um, support structure. Mm. But there, one of the key things that stood out there that one of your colleagues explained to me is that quite often the perpetrators of crime were already victims earlier in their lives. Yep. And that yep. was something that stood out to me. No, that cycle and intergenerational as well is a really important part of all these things, isn't it? No, no, I mean, it, it's fascinating to hear you talk about it and that, you know, d- the data doesn't lie. Um, so what would be one of the biggest learnings then from your year, you know, perhaps more exposed to some of these issues than than, than previously? What's the biggest takeaway? I, I, for the yes, absolutely. Um, Adrian, I think it's validated the view that prevention is so much better than cure. You know, we talk about it in the health service and in terms of, um, you know, so many other parts of society and business as well, quite often. Um, but throughout this criminal justice system, just that little bit more effort, attention and resource at the start could prevent um, a lot more effort, disruption, emotional consequence uh, and state resource being spent further down the line. Mm. So that that really does strike me. I think it's a very powerful message indeed. And sometimes, you know, even my association with the homeless charity, we spend a lot of money at the wrong end. It should be at the uh, the front end, and that means really with young people. Um, just okay, to change. Okay, okay. Sorry, go oh, ahead. So, sorry, could I before we move on? Can I just give you an example? I mean, when I talk about best practice, um, at the Community Foundation Awards late last year, um, I went up on stage to award the Northampton Saints Foundation, mm-hmm. um, one of the community foundation awards, uh, for um, their engaged programs. Now, they specifically they um, they specifically go and focus on those that are at risk of being excluded from school or those that have been excluded from school. So they're taking on the most difficult cohort, um, nine stroke ten to sixteen year olds. And the reason that's so important is that's a massive um, correlation with locked up male youth. Mm. So later, when I then sort of started, you know, and I matched that up to the prison statistics I saw, it was crystal clear that they're head on dealing with one of the most difficult cohorts, but that will make the biggest difference in terms of impact. You know, if you look at um, the impact it has. Everyone they turn around there was there was a high degree of probability that they would progress through that criminal justice system. And when I looked at the stats, 56 students that they'd supported under the period that uh, we were reviewing, 37 returned to their mainstream school. One in another school, one in another program. Two went on to higher education. And then 12, they kept on the program at the Saints and were still working with them. Now, that's an astounding outcome. Yes. And as I said, why it's so important is – in in society, and these are these are things that I post on Instagram. From you know, on Instagram, I post nice pictures of me in a uniform standing next to the, to all sorts of people. But I also um, put some hard data out there from time to time. And in the mainstream population, 
1% of that mainstream pop general population is expelled or excluded from school. And yet, of the prison population, it forms 42%. Wow. So it's an astounding... So that's what I'm saying, is I always go back to the data and work forwards from there. Mm. And when I'm then meeting the people on the ground that are making a difference, well, what a phenomenal difference that Saints Foundation is making. And there are... You know, that's just one that I gave an award to um, on behalf of the Community Foundation. But there are so many others up and down the country doing that, um, uh, you know, at, at a smaller scale. Yeah, no, we're very powerful. As you say, the data doesn't lie, and those are some really very important um, issues. As the High Sheriff, you have the, you, you know, support the legal system, right, from the judges down to those that are, you know, got foul of the um, the legal system. You're also allowed, I think, to support a particular cause or issue. What was your cause during the year? What was the focus? Well, no, so what I did was rather than specifically focusing on one particular issue, I focused on the entire criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it was joining the dots. A lot of it was connecting people within that criminal justice system. But I also I made it my priority. So, you know, when it comes to juggling the diary and things like that, uh, the criminal justice system it takes top priority and then there may be other events that i'm invited to and you know there are garden parties and there are battle reenactments and all these sorts of things that go on happily they will go in but always the diary i will try and afford priority to the criminal justice system in terms of fundraising um i was fundraising for two things that the um the legal walk that we have in this county every year mm-hmm. and we had a great turnout this year it rained uh, but we had a great turnout and um, we did really well on fundraising, so that was great. But that is for access to justice. There's there's an Access to Justice Foundation nationally that organizes these walks across the country. Mm. Um, and that was great because it's not just about legal aid, but Access to Justice is about citizens as vice bureaus and all of these other entities. And it's not just when somebody's accused of a crime that they need legal support. If you are to if you're a tenant and you need to look at what your rights are vis-a-vis the landlord um you know you go to the citizens advice bureau they support you etc so all the rights that we have in theory we can only enforce them in practice as a society if we know where to get the support from and the majority of people in this country do not know where to go and get legal advice from Mm. a very important Part. And of course, when you get into the system, it is so alien to so many of us, right? Yeah, so, uh, so that, that's the first fund. And the second one is the High Sheriff's Initi- uh, Initiative Fund, where we have an endowment that the Community Foundation manages for us. And then from that, we make some awards. And we made um, some key awards this year um, of a few thousand pounds each to particular grassroots initiatives that we thought would, would benefit and would make a difference. Tremendous. What's been the highlight of your year so far with eight weeks to go, two months to go? Oh, the highlight. Look, I think, you know, every week brings something unique that you think this is amazing. And uh, and you have to pinch yourself at the, the privileged position you're in. I Early in the year, I started the year with the coronation, and that was absolutely wonderful. Um, you know, we have a county that is uh administratively divided into north and west uh, the whole county came together completely and utterly um i worked very closely with the lord lieutenant uh and and the entire team of dl's and that coronation was an opportunity for the county to shine so that was great um a lot of the grassroots work that i can do with the non-profits that i find tremendously fulfilling 
And, you know, I'd hope that once retired as High Sheriff, some of these I can continue with. Mm-hmm. Just to assist in the background, you know, just with words of advice or connecting them, introducing them to people. Um, there's an awful lot that can be done. Um, royal visits are always great fun. Mm. They're quite often brief because uh, sometimes we follow for the, we're there for the entire visit. Sometimes uh, it's just an initial lineup, um, a few pleasantries, and we move on. <laughs> but they're always great fun. Um, the, the whole year has gone really quickly. We had some key events. We had a, a lovely garden party, and that was a great physical opportunity to introduce people to each other. Um, and we also we recently had a very interesting lecture on the history of law and order within the county of Northamptonshire, which was some primary research done by um, Neil Lyon of the um, uh, who looks at who oversees our archives. Mm-hmm. Uh, we and then a, a key event, I think, if you go back to November, uh, if you like pomp and pageant, um, is we had the justice service or the court service, uh, as we call it in this county, yeah. and that really was a great event. And we had, I think, at least six other high sheriffs from other bailiwicks come down to Northamptonshire to celebrate that with us. So that was wonderful. Yeah, no, well, uh, several of those I've been lucky enough, privileged enough to attend as well. I, I do enjoy the annual court service, I have to say. And yes, what a year, the coronation and um, everything to do with it. So I guess, well, two things just to end on. Firstly, uh, are you counting anything like the number of meetings, or the number of handshakes or the number of charities that you've been to visit or anything like that? Is there a sort of legacy, given that you like data so much, Millen? Yes. Um, no, look, I'm not, I'm, I'm not counting at this stage, not in that sense. But at the end of the year, we will tot up some of these stats because I set myself quarterly targets. Every high sheriff before me that I spoke to, and I am the recipient of immense wisdom from previous high sheriffs in this county and elsewhere. Um, yeah, there's no guidebook as to how to be a high sheriff, so you have to go and talk to those that have done it before. And everyone said the year will go quickly. Mm-hmm. So I know that when that's the case, that you have to divide it into chunks, set yourself some objectives, and make sure that you sort of are judicious in how you allocate your time and resource. Um so along the way, along each quarter, I'm pretty happy with what's been delivered, um, and and so really across the piece, I'm I'm very happy. But yeah, we'll you know we'll dig out some statistics towards the end. I would anyway do that as I hand over to my successor. Um, what was your other question? Well, the other question, the last one actually, is the real um, power behind the throne. I think is your dad. No, this year. <laughs> no, look, he's helping me. He's he's um, he's in his late seventies. He's in. <laughs> Uh, yes, you've met him a few times at events. He um, he has lived in this county for 50 years. He knows more people than I do in this county. Um, but he volunteered when I, you know, one of the things you do when you're high sheriff is you give a commitment to the Privy Council that you will not leave the country for a year. So I have not travelled internationally all year. No, oh, I didn't know that. How interesting. Uh, okay. Uh, and for some for somebody whose business is international and who normally would spend a high proportion of the year, you know, in Vietnam or India or wherever looking 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 at spice origins, um I have you know, the entire ten months to date I've not been abroad. He also gave that commitment and he is my driver, so I'm very fortunate to be driven about the county. <laughs> um it means I can literally just I don't have to go and look for parking, I can hop off at an event um 
He's also my valet, so with a velvet uniform, he has a little um, roller that uh, he rolls all over the uniform to make sure there are no bits of dust or specks on it before we go out. Because I think, you know, you've gone to the trouble of having a magnificent uniform. You might as well go out in it properly with the boots polished and the sword shining and, you know. So I think that's important. But he has thoroughly enjoyed himself meeting people um, across the county. He's a firm favourite amongst all the other high sheriffs who know him well. Um, so yes, he's also had uh, a great time and I certainly would like to thank him. Um, so <laughs> thanks for raising that. Fantastic. Well, that's wonderful to hear all about the role. Um, we've had previous high sheriffs on, but you know, it's always fascinating to hear the individualization of it, right? The personalization of the role. And Milan, a great pleasure to talk to you as always, but uh, thank you for sharing with our listeners that insight into the life of the high sheriff. I would imagine no two days have been the same, um, but, you know, the thought and the care and the, and the passion you're putting into it, and as you say, looking at those issues, trying to understand them through the data, but also through the people. Many thanks to you indeed. I hope Th- you thank are. you for the opportunity, Adrian. We have a wonderful county, and it's always a pleasure to um, get involved. Take care. Absolutely. Many thanks. She calls out to the man on the street Sir, can you help me? It's cold and I know where to sleep There's somewhere you can tell me He walks on, doesn't look back He pretends he can't hear her Starts to whistle he crosses the street Seems embarrassed to be
Many thanks to Milan Shah for that interview, and I hope you enjoyed perhaps a more reflective song there, Phil Collins with Another Day in Paradise, because clearly Milan cares about the community and cares about everyone in it and has done an awful lot of work to help and support the community, and of course now in his role as High Sheriff, responsible for the legal system, um, there are those that fall foul of the system and of the law indeed, and we must really stop and pause because, you know, the hardship, the austerity times mean that um, people who are struggling will only grow in numbers, unfortunately. Um, But also, great to hear from Milan, a good friend. Great to hear from all my guests. Many thanks to all my guests. To Paul McKellen, a businessman flying between the UK and the US. To Eliza Seville, Seville, who is a fanatic for motorsport. And, of course, many thanks to Martin Steers, the long-suffering station manager for NLive Radio. Thank you, Martin, for putting the show together, which is technically, I think, called producing it. Many thanks, of course, to you for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I hope you've enjoyed the music. And I hope you've enjoyed the interviews. Um, Very um, detailed, really, today. I I hope you'll be back with us next Tuesday. Same time, same place, 7 to 9 p.m. here on NLive Radio, 106.9 FM. Also available live digitally, of course, at nliradio.com. If you want to make any comments about the show, if you'd like to be on the show, any suggestions, or if you think the university can help you or your business and you're not sure where to start, please do write to me, adrian.price at northampton.ac.uk. That's adrian, A-D-R-I-A-N, dot price, P-R-Y-C-E, at northampton.ac.uk. That said, again, thanks to guests, thanks to Martin, and thanks to you all. We'll play out with the Communards and a lovely song, um, Don't Leave Me This Way. Enjoy and good night.
Sunshine Zone 106.9 N Live. From the Sky News Centre at nine. Labour has suspended a second member who wanted to run as an MP over comments he apparently made criticising Israel a week after the October attacks by Hamas. Graham Jones, a former MP who wanted to get back into the House of Commons, hasn't yet commented. Last night, claims about comments another candidate had made led to him losing the support of Labour in an upcoming by-election. Andrew Fisher, who used to advise ex-leader Jeremy Corbyn, thinks it's been badly handled. It shows the double standards that there are when tackling serious issues of racism and conspiracy theories within the party because other people within the party have been suspended instantly for far lesser offences. Talks aimed at securing a peace deal between Israel and Hamas have ended in Egypt with no agreement. But officials say both sides are edging closer towards a ceasefire and hostage release deal. Israel has said it's aiming to target civilians in, sorry, aiming to target Hamas in Gaza. The body shop has gone into administration after almost 50 years on the high street. It'll stay operating while insolvency experts look at whether it can be sold. A man who denies murdering Glasgow sex worker Emma Coldwell almost 20 years ago has given evidence at his trial. Ian Packer, who's now 51, also says around 25 women who claim he assaulted them are making it up. Russia's ambassador to the UK insists his country has no intention of invading any other nation. Estonia's foreign intelligence service claims Moscow is preparing for a possible war with NATO in the next decade. But Ambassador Andrei Kalin believes any escalation in its war with Ukraine wouldn't be in Russia's interest. There is no interest in Poland uh, or other Baltic countries and we fully understand that any escalation beyond Ukraine will bring a world conflict. And Manchester City have a 2-1 lead in the first leg of their Champions League last 16 tie at FC Copenhagen. Kevin De Bruyne and Bernardo Silva have scored their goals. And that's the latest. I'm Simon English.